there's a website and the talks are uploaded to that and people listen to that. And a lot of people find just tremendous value in just ordinary conversations and discussions because oftentimes your questions and concerns and the things that are your perspectives are also shared by many others. And to have them voiced and aired means that other people have a, also a similar experience of having things that are meaningful to them be talked about. Are we um, posing something or whatever? Yeah, um, I'm not sure if I'll reach a question, but just in in Tess articulating earlier um, her perspective and you teaching tonight about um, the courage it takes to be present or to show up, as you put it. And it makes me wonder, because I, I agree, it takes tremendous courage, and I have to remind myself to have the courage to try to show up. Um, and one of the first ways I realize I'm not doing it is in my face, actually. My face is very, like, tight. <laughs> and then I'll say, be here, and I'll, it'll soften. Um, and the other... I'm not sure if it's a related point. I guess I wonder why do I have to remind myself of these things? Um, maybe this is what Tess was getting at. And I think it's, and I might, I might be wrong, but my, my thought is that it must be from socialization, almost like the survival package that we get to be able to... Um, exist in society and we need that but I guess we don't also learn this part yeah I mean the level of conditioning that we have is huge and you know as we grow older we need to sift and sort which which part of that conditioning is something that's useful for us and which part of that doesn't serve us at all and so that's part of you know uh, Growing up is 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 making clear discernment about the kinds of things that we want to take on and follow, and the kinds of things that we don't. And you know, it's not an easy it's not an easy journey, you know, because the values of our society are insane in many areas, you know. And so, you know, when we stand on our own against some of the things that are contemporarily agreed as like okay. We're against a stream of, of a lot, you know. There's their billboards are not encouraging you to show up and be present, you know. They're 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 not encouraging that, you know. They're they're saying that your value is entirely dependent on buying the product that they're wanting to sell you, you know. And it's like that. That is not related to any truth that I have ever experienced. <laughs> Understanding of how I want, how I want to live my life, it seems so clear in my head. And then I'll talk to somebody who has not even like cracked the surface of like, I mean, just someone that is completely and totally wrapped up in society, pretty much and everything that they've been taught. And my class.
clear understanding of how I want to live my life is not so clear just for having a 30-second conversation with somebody. So, like, why you have to remind yourself is because we're so tempted all the time. I mean, the only time I can really feel, like, 100% certain anymore, like, that I'm on the right path is when I'm surrounded by people like you guys because mm-hmm. I... But Tess, but Tess, the reason why spiritual community is considered the most important thing is because of that. So until a person has reached a point where they are unshakable, all right, then what we need are spiritual friends. Okay. Now the Buddha was unequivocal about that. You know, Ananda was his uh, chief uh, attendant. And Ananda came to him and said, you know, I've got it figured out. You know, the spiritual life is half of the holy life. And he said, no, you've got it wrong. Spiritual life is 100% of the holy life. And so, you know, what I understand him to be saying is, is, is that it's not that we don't have work to do ourselves, but if we aren't in association and loops where we're speaking about these things with each other, and having ways of mirroring for each other our goodness when we forget it ourselves, what we're dealing with is a force of habit that is amplified by our society that makes it um, too much for us to get across the stream. But when you hang out with people who can look in your eyes and say, I see you, and I see the goodness in you, and I see the value of what you're trying to do, it's like, you don't have to have all of it on yourself to know that and to remember that all of the time. So mm-hmm. that there are people like that if there weren't, probably, um, I don't even know how hard it would be. <laughs> I wouldn't even be here, honestly. I'm so grateful for all of you. for all people that are painted, I guess I could say, to what I guess I'm coming from a spot where at my high school meditation was um, very encouraged. And, uh, it went along with breathing to like being a vocal major. You'd you need to know where your breath is, or else you're just you lose your shit. You don't want to like mess up a phrase or something. Um, and also just being present in the song as well. Like singing's meditative. It's therapeutic as well. Um, for biological reasons too. Um, and it's crazy because that was six years ago. And my frame of mind has changed a lot. Like I've worked in bars six years. Um, so I guess I've been enculturated for a long time to like shut off everything and to not be vulnerable so this is a huge shift in my life and it's kind of hard to quiet my mind which is why I think I need to just make the push to get some calmness back Try to find um, my anchor. Are you all in Denver? Yeah. Yeah. 
Do you know about the Denver Dharma Talks? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you been going? I just went last week with Jake. Okay. Because I was just talking on the telephone to Steve, and I'll be down on the 1st and the 15th, which are Fridays. Okay. And, um, you know, the Denver Dharma Talks has gone through a shift, and so there's a whole bunch of new people now, and it's almost as if they have to start all over again, because the kind of, you know, who started it three years ago, they're not around. And so we were just talking about various different things and, you know, stuff about, you know, my participation and what would be useful. And so these next, well, on the 1st and the 15th, I'd like to come down and talk about um, generosity, integrity, and practice and have the meditations be short and have it be more like this in a community meeting where we're just kind of getting to know each other and time together, you know. Um, but yeah, so there's shifts that are happening, but you know, particularly now because things are shifting, if you feel the real uh, value of Sangha, then it would be really important to show up and to let that be known. Because anytime things are shifting, then the voices of whoever shows up actually has an enormous impact, you know. For me personally, like there's been times in my life where I kind of made a mental shift and started looking at things differently. And I didn't have anyone there to like really share it with or talk about it. And it's, it's really easy to fall back into the old way of life. It's really easy. Way too easy. It's scary. How easy. <laughs> Super scary. I mean, we have conversations all the time about like our spirituality and everything. And one of the things that we both feel like we, I don't know, we've both said this, is like, I don't think I could ever live my life like all those people again. But honestly, I think we both, honestly, we don't. (laughs) It's easy. It's way too easy. It almost feels nice at first. Yeah, it's like a, it's like the first hit of a cigarette after I'm smoking three days. It's like, oh, that was hard. <laughs> but then again, after you start living your life normally again, how everybody else does, and you don't necessarily, you're not present anymore, like, just like cigarettes, it gets old after a while and you're searching for something else to help you. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's just an endless cycle that won't ever be broken, honestly, unless people really try and keep focused and really know what they're doing to themselves and mm-hmm. how present I guess. That's mm-hmm. Being mindful. It's the only thing that can break mm-hmm. the cycle. Yeah, like you said, there's sometimes when I feel like everything I've learned, it's so hard to believe that I could ever be unmindful again in my life. Mm-hmm. But you know, 25 years down the road, I don't know where I'm going to be 25 years from now. I could be totally unmindful 25 years from now. I could spend the rest of my life unmindful. I could forget everything I learned here. You know, It's really hard to remain mindful. So there's a saying, even a 90-year-old saint isn't safe. And what that means is, is that, you know, we have an idea about what it is that's going to be make us safe. You know, so we think somebody who's been practicing for 90 years or somebody who's a saint, that they're safe. But there's a way in which until our minds have actually had certain kinds of things uprooted, mm-hmm. then there's still always the possibility that we can, we can 
we can transgress, we can fall back, we can forget, we can not remember, okay? So, you know, there's a value in, in creating the stability in our practice and getting through to levels where there's some sense of, well, we can't go back, yeah? And until we get to that place where there's there's unshakability, then what's really important is to create the conditions that support so that if we're not unshakable in ourselves, we've got support systems around us that help reflect and help mirror and all the rest of that. You know, one of the people who's on the interactive inquiries, I haven't heard from him in ages, so I was sending emails and trying to find out, and I contacted some of his people. He's had a relapse, you know. And so it's like somebody I also know who's been through that whole journey it's like, well, when you are in a relapse, either you recover or you go to jail or you die. It's like you don't have a whole lot of options. And so, you know, all of his people who've been through that, it's like holding vigil to see what choices he makes, you know. Mm-hmm. Because it's like when a person's in the middle of that, you can reach your hand out. But if they don't take it, there's nothing else that you can do, you know. A lot of people feel like they can take it into their own hands, even, like, um, I guess me, even, honestly, I feel like I can take things into my own hands all the time. Like, my best friend is, she's doing really well and she's doing really great for herself, and then she decided to just make some last decisions, and she's in trouble, like, really in trouble at the moment. She's going to have to sacrifice a lot of her life to in order to get back to where she was before. And, um, I don't know, for a long time I felt like I could literally just be like, Devin, if you come live at my house, I'm going to make sure that you live your life how you need to live your life. I'm going to make your life what it needs to be. And really, really recently, I just found out that I can't do that for her. Like, (laughs) I want to do so badly, but I can't do that for her. It's really one of the I guess that scares me pretty much more than anything that I can't save the people that I love from their own self. Right. And I think there's something about that which is um, both humbling and beautiful. And uh, I'm not sure what it is, but there's a there's a humility of realizing that all of the love in the world that we have for somebody sometimes is not enough for them to make choices that help them not suffer. You know. That, that, that each person has their own journey that they have to make. And, and sometimes what we have to do is stand by in vigilance and show up as they fuck up, you mm-hmm. know, and watch the suffering that they have to deal with as a result. And what looks like to us as being totally uh, avoidable mm-hmm. in their situation, it was like that's the path that they have had to go through. And to watch it with eyes open, with hearts tender, to feel how painful it is to watch somebody you care about suffer like that. There's, I don't think there's anything quite as excruciating as watching somebody that you care about suffer, you know? The only thing that helps, the only thing that helps is knowing that all the bad situations that she is going to go through, I mean, they're so drastic that she, there's no way she's not going to learn a lesson from it. <laughs> So, I mean, that's probably the only positive thing that I can get from all of her negative situations. But, I mean, even so, thank God there's a positive side to it. Mm-hmm. 
if she was just doing all this with the intention of doing all of it over and over again and not knowing anything from it, like, that'd be a lot harder. At least I know that she's intelligent and willing, just not in the time that I want her to, I guess. It kind of reminds me about the first talk of uh, the first meditation I went to that you were speaking at. A couple Sundays ago, we talked about there's no amount of education you can, or amount of words that you can say to someone that's going to get them to, to change. You can only you know, try to bring about the conditions necessary. Some people are just not going to get it. Right. But in the meantime, what's really helpful is to have people and friends that you can share your own. Um, heart space with of what it's like for you to watch as your friend goes through all of this stuff, you know, and what it feels like for you and the kinds of things that get activated for you in terms of your own regret or longing or wanting or not wanting, you know, just in being bearing witness and showing up as this friend of yours is, has this big journey she's navigating. I guess that's another positive thing is that I do get to be there for her while she develops. Yes, try to help her make help her make good decisions, not even for her. Right. Try to educate her the possible. I guess I don't really know. Sometimes it just seems like it's not really being taken in, but I still feel like I need to say it. I don't know. Is it worth saying something to somebody that doesn't <laughs> listen? <laughs> I mean, that's a really interesting question about what is actually skillful in terms of when is it helpful to say something. And I know, um, you know, I don't have an easy answer for that. But what I do know is, is, is that the sophistication to know what is the right thing to say to a person is, is non-trivial. I know that. And I also know that as nuns, you know, women tend to be perceptive. And celibate women tend to be phenomenally perceptive, okay? Like, off the Richter scale perceptive. But it took us about 20 years to get our skill level equal to our perceptivity level, for our skill level to catch up with our level of perceptivity. Because just because we saw something did not mean that it was actually useful to share it. In fact, a lot of the times it was it was not helpful, you know. So for our skill level to catch up, to tune into where people were at, and to be able to create a fabric of safety so that it would make it the most possible for them to hear what we had to hear, took a lot of effort and skill and training. Much, much, much more so because the perceptivity for most of us was like this. It was zero effort. It just came. But the skill to tune in to what a person needed to be able to hear it took a lot more to develop. Mm -hmm. And the delivery. Right. And we learned that oftentimes by making terrible mistakes. I was thinking today about school 
my job because I'm over it. I'm just going to school now. But I've been so frustrated with all this online stuff. And I was thinking it's because I really like the experience. That's how I learn things. Like, I'm human. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They won't just put it on a screen and have us read it and then just know it. Oh, well, it saves paper and I understand, um, I understand where they're going, but there's always... There's always that little voice in the back of my educational path brain that's telling me, I just, I would take classes all day just for the experience. Mm -hmm. That's really the only way I can learn. That's the only way most people can learn. I have to drop on my English class because I can't, I mean, I like writing with my hand and it's all on the computer. Like, I can't turn in a handwritten um, paper. I literally just don't feel like it being worth it because I can't like connect it to what I'm writing. Have you talked with your teacher about it? No. <laughs> I'm so far behind already. I, I've done that with English before, especially if you're taking a poetry class. I feel, I feel like if you're staring at a computer screen, it's really, you're disconnected. You're completely it's dehumanized. Yeah. It's literally it's really hard. <laughs> I don't even feel like I'm writing anything. I feel like I'm What would happen if you took a piece of paper and wrote it on a paper and then transcribed it on a computer? So that you actually, your space was in your own space with the paper and a pen, you know, and a pencil. Mm -hmm. In a nature place or wherever it is you feel comfortable to write. And then... I made excuses when it came. I thought about that. I made a lot of excuses. Just to be honest, like, I thought about it. I got it, and I was like, okay, I could write it down and type what I wrote down. But then I was like, okay, I don't know the formats, I don't know the, I don't have the word program on the computer, like, I just don't want to stare at the computer. That's pretty much my excuses, like, I just don't want to do it, honestly. So when you have insight like that, it's wonderful. (laughs) Because it, because it makes it really clear what you're dealing with. Yeah, and that's wonderful. Because when you're not clear what you're dealing with, there's no way that you can change it. It's hard to deal with yourself. <laughs> a lot of the time. For the most challenging, anyway, sometimes. Um, sort of going back to what you were saying when you know, when you were someone you love is suffering. Um, and you said, I think the best thing you can do is to just have an open heart to that, to their experience, and to kind of um, just be there for them. I think you said vulnerably, or there's a word you used. Um, but, and again, I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this, but I wonder. One, I guess, why some folks, I'm thinking of my sister, will make repeatedly what I think anyone would objectively say is a bad decision um, over and over again. Um, and I, I'd read a little bit, but I don't know. I mean, I think that karma that she inherited, or I'm not 
very versed in that. Um, and then the other thing that I wonder is what you do when you're in a position to help, um, maybe financially, and you can, but it seems like it's putting a band-aid on, on it because she'll just continue to make poor choices. Let me tell you something. I'm going to jump because certainly the whole topic of karma is very rich. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a traditional context, they would say, yeah, that's the reason. In a calm modern context, I would say it's probably related to trauma. Let me tell you a story. Peter Levine has a book called Waking the Tiger, and he's got several other books. And they're all about trauma. And one of the stories was is there's a guy, I can't remember how old he was, but like 60. Okay, so he's not a teenager, right? He's 60. And on July 6th at 6 o'clock in the morning, he went and he stole um, something from uh, 7-Eleven. And the next year, on July 6th at 6 o'clock in the morning, he stole something from uh, another store. And then on July 6th at 6 o'clock in the morning, the third year running, he went and stole something, but this time he stole it, and it's like he had a gun, because he would take a pencil or a finger or something dumb under his robe, or, so it looked like he had a gun. So he was busted, and to be armed, this is armed robbery now. So even though he was stealing a bubble gum, you know, basically this is a, 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 fe- oh, this is a felony offense. And the judge was smart and saw that July 6th at 6 o'clock in the morning for three years running, he's stolen something. And so his sentence was for this guy to do somatic experience work, okay, to do trauma work. And what the trauma therapist discovered was is that July 6th at 6 o'clock in the morning, he was holding his friend as his friend died from a bullet wound in a trench in some war, Vietnam or something like that. And this is exactly what happens with trauma, is is that it's constantly reactivating itself as some kind of a way to try and get some resolution. But because it's coming from an unconscious place rather than from clarity, he's not resolving it by going and stealing things. But gratefully, he ended up in a kind of a mess that ended up with a person who had the compassion to understand that this is not ordinary behavior. There's some mechanism that's making this happen. So if there's a possibility that what's happening for your sister is a reactivation of trauma, then as a person who's able to support her, to support her to investigate to see if this in fact is the case is not just a Band-Aid. Okay? What you're doing is you're holding a container for her to open this up in a safe way to see if that, in fact, might be the cause that also might be the way that you can release the problem. Okay? Now, in Denver, there'll be somatic experience. People people are trained with that, you know? So that would be a specific way to help focus your attention on supporting her in a way that is not just a Band-Aid. Now, if it's not trauma... And maybe, you know, there's other things that might be a little bit more complicated. But if it is trauma, it's possible that it can shift. Okay? But we can see that people can get looped into making bad choices. You know, or somebody... I mean, it's classic. Somebody who's an alcoholic, you know, they get into all kinds of 
they they partner up with somebody else who you know somebody who's codependent gets in relationship with somebody who's abusive or somebody who's you know all of this stuff you know it's just and it's the way our unconscious actually operates where we are drawn to the person as a perfect energetic match of where our traumas haven't released yet and understanding trauma and how it operates is huge. So certainly you can say, yeah, well, that's an aspect of karma. But this is an aspect of karma that's highly, um, with a lot of intelligence in it, that really focuses where you need to put your attention to release it. Thank you. Do most people have some sort of trauma that they haven't released? I think so. I mean, that seems to be my experience with the people that I've dealt with, is this, that it seems to be pretty universal. Do you think that's one of the main reasons why a lot of people can't feel like, oh, I don't know how to communicate this? I guess a lot of people can't, um, a lot of people feel like victims, I guess it's kind of... I think part of that is the trauma, and I think part of that is because we're in a victim society. And so, you know, there's there's a whole value system about feeling victimized, you know. That's, yeah, there's a huge thing about it. And, and um, Carolyn Miss wrote this fabulous thing. I was just stunned by the clarity of her understanding. She was speaking to a woman who had a very strong victim identity, and she was not interested to participate in that. And, you know, this woman felt let down, betrayed, all the rest of that. And so she, Carolyn Miss, you know, articulated the, the victim consciousness that a lot of people have. And, you know, there's all kinds of funny things that go on, you know, in terms of the loops or the kind of rabbit holes that people get stuck into and how it's difficult to pull ourselves out of it. But this society in particular is very, very strong victim victim um, oriented. I don't know how it got that way, but it is that way. I mean, like you said, like the words are the whole their whole goal is to make you feel like you're not good enough. Right. You know, so, yeah. So many people's goal to make you think So that would play on in a sense of inadequacy. I don't know how that would play on a sense of being a victim. Because people don't like feeling inadequate, so they make it seem like it's somebody else's fault and they're just a victim. I don't know. My mom's really good at it. My mom's really good at it because she feels like she's not an adequate parent. So she tries to say, like, this is why, this is why, this is why, this is why, this is why. It's because I'm a victim. It's because I've been victimized my whole life, and I, there's all these reasons why I'm not a good parent. Like, well, she is a good parent, she just doesn't feel like she is. So she plays a victim a lot of the time to make up for the fact that she's an adequate. Which is freaking irritating. But, I don't know. I don't know how to help people that feel like the victim because they want to feel that way. Well, with the victim, the victim mentality, you need to help them have a choice. But that's actually a choice. You can point out, this is a choice. This is not an identity. This is a choice. Mm-hmm. And so when they can see a choice, then they have more possibility of not choosing that. Mm-hmm. 
If they don't see a choice, then they take it as an identity. I think denial has a big role in her whole persona, I guess, too, because, um, I don't know, she's in such denial. I don't think that she could ever see another choice because she feels like she's already made them. So she's a victim, she's in denial, and she's inadequate. So she's pretty much blocked me out from any sort of like way of helping her, I feel like. But I mean, all I can really do is like be there for her, I guess, and tell her that she's a good parent. But even that kind of seems like it's not helping most of the time. But you see, one of the things is, is that it's not our job to do somebody else's work. And that's another lesson that's just really hard to learn. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what our work is, is to attend to the things that arise and get triggered for us as we show up and notice all these other things. So being as perceptive as you are, it's easy for you to name and to label stuff that's going on for another person. But your work is to actually show up for yourself. What happens for you when you're around that? And that is actually manifesting in your mom, you know? You know, what happens for you around all of that? And attend to that. So as you attend to what arises for you with, with skill, with compassion, with responsiveness, then, then you will find more fullness in yourself. And that fullness will have a way of being communicated to your mom, whether you say anything to her or not. So your job is in taking care of yourself. And in taking care of yourself, there will be an immediate kind of spillover. Yes. Yeah. 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 My grandma always said you, you can't just sit around and wait for something to inspire you. Inspiration is you got to make it happen. Yes. Good grandma. Good <laughs> grandma. Grandma's a best. Good grandma. So we've got a couple people who haven't said much. Can we invite you to share? Uh, where, where in England was the monastery you were at? Chidhurst was near Chichester, and Amirati was near Hamel Hempstead. Okay. With the one at Hamel Hempstead, was it an old, like, country house or something originally? No, in the 30s, um, there was the Canadian Air Force Academy, the Canadian Air Force that built this as a, as a place to evacuate kids during the war. Yeah, so I remember when I was, I was little, but I was out with my grandparents, and we were where uh, my grandfather grew up, and there was some old sort of, you know, stately home there that had been taken over, and I, I think now it, it was some sort of Buddhist place, but I remember driving past it, and my grandparents said, you know, the weirdos have moved in now, you know, <laughs> like used to be this sort of house, and I was wondering if that was you, you know, but I think it seems to be different. Where was the house? Well, that was sort of close to Hemel Hempstead, I mean, sort of Watford. This was, ha- this was near Great Gadsden. I don't know what that is. And what, what, what year was that? Oh. It was maybe 30, 30-something years ago. Yeah, see, Amravati didn't start until 1985, yeah. so that would have I mean, been... I know there's other places over there, but... Shithurst Monastery started in 79. Yeah. I don't 
but uh, I am a weirdo, but I don't think that was me. <laughs> yeah, they, at the time, obviously, they didn't elaborate. I mean, that I don't think they knew what it was, but I just remember them saying that. You know, it was yeah. Funny. yeah. Yeah, they built it as a place for kids, and, you know, it was set up for summertime. So, you know, the England has really bitter, cold weather. And the heating situation was horrendous. It was like $60,000 a year to use the existing heating because they had pipes that were this big underground that were not insulated, so it was just insane. So the first thing that happened when the monks and the nuns moved in was they ripped out the old heating. And it took, I don't know, 10, 15 years before there was enough money to reinstall heating that made sense. So for a long time, it was really cold. Some warm dirt. We didn't use the heat. We turned it off because it was too expensive (laughs) to use. So you know, there was the monastery was running on you know on fumes for many years. You know, and so they didn't have the kind of resources to even consider turning on the heat. So I remember I didn't live there that first winter, but I heard that that first winter, you know, they turned off all of the heat and it was really really cold. And somebody had left their toothbrush in a glass of water, and it froze solid inside. Oh, my God. And then they, somebody had tracked in some snow, and the snow stayed snow for, like, three days oh. <laughs> inside the house. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just really cold. Oh. I don't remember when the heat, when the final heat started to come, but, you know, they it was just really cold. Really cold. Well, I guess it could be better than really hot. It could be. <laughs> I remember the cold. Really cold. Yeah, interesting place. But the temple is still there. So, still there. So, um, next Friday night, I'm coming to... And next Saturday night, I'm not going to be teaching here because I'm doing a day-long teaching with a women's group. So I won't be teaching here. But next Friday night, I'm coming to Denver. The following Friday night, I'm doing a story. So they've got a story project here in in Colorado Springs. Sharon Friedman Strauss is a cousin of mine. And she started this thing, which is really lovely. She just has people in the community telling stories. Mm. And so... She has the the theme of this next of this next story night will be on love. So when she said that, I said, oh, "Well, I can talk about that." Mm-hmm. So I'll be one of the storytellers on the eighth, on the eighth. For the love month. Yeah, yeah. And then on the fifteenth, which is the following Friday, I'll be back again in Denver. And then on the sixteenth, I'll be here teaching again. So we've got these things happening now. One thing that I'm going to be starting, I don't know, I've got an email sign-up sheet, so if you want to put your name on it, please do. And we have, you know, with a lot of our organizational stuff in the monast- in this organization, where we've got many tasks and a few hands, so it takes a while to get names in the system, you know, this kind of thing. But I'm starting an inter uh, uh, a conference call starting on the 3rd, so next Sunday night, that will be about... Um, 
bringing the processes of meditation into the experience of communication. There's a whole um, uh, way of doing that. So there's a conference call, so you can just dial in if you want to participate in that. It'll be the third? The third, yeah, from five to seven. And so um, I just made the flyer and sent it to the web team to post it to the website. Once it's posted to the website, it can post it to the Facebook group. I'll put it on the calendar, and I'll put it out to the e-list. But if you've only just added your name to the e-list, um, our system is, you know, slow. So check the Facebook group. Check the calendar if you want to be part of that. Okay. So Awakening Truth has a Facebook group. Awakening Truth has a website. The calendar is um, probably the best place to check about details of stuff and when I'm going to be teaching and not. And if anybody knows of somebody who is turned on about the Dhamma and would like to be a volunteer coordinator and has some experience with that, that's something that would be fabulous. We really need one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. So um, let's do a little bit of metta meditation and close.